Hello and welcome to Special Issue, Wiley's podcast for societies about all things scholarly publishing. I'm Anna Ayler. In this episode, we'll listen in on a talk given by Yasmin Poole at our recent February 2021 virtual Wiley Research Seminar. Research seminars bring together many different stakeholders in research, society publishers, as well as librarians, faculty, editors, and others. Yasmin is an early career researcher, as well as a writer, advocate, and a winner of the 2021 Youth Influencer of the Year Award. In her talk, Yasmin argued that we need more intersectionality in all aspects of our lives, including in research. Intersectionality is the idea that we each have many identities, for example, our racial identity, class identity, and gender identity, and that it's the combination of those identities that forms us as individuals, including how we experience privilege and oppression. So today I'm going to be talking about intersectionality. And to give you an idea of kind of where my interest started, there was a moment a couple of years ago on my 21st birthday and I was doing a speech to Parliament of Victoria to a group of young women of colour about leadership. And as I spoke to them, I looked at the walls and I noticed that every single portrait was of an old white man. And this contrasted a lot with the people in the audience that I saw, which was the diverse faces of young women aspiring to enter politics. And I thought to myself, you know, what are the impacts of an institution that has historically excluded many communities, just like myself, a young Asian Australian woman? What does that mean in terms of how we think about policy and perhaps even you know, wider questions in society as well? So I thought I would start by, I guess, giving an overview about my experience as an undergraduate student with university and research as a whole. And uh, I come from a low income background. And when I enrolled in law, I noticed that the majority of my peers came from wealthier backgrounds. And because of that, there was, you know, people that had grown up their whole lives in wealthy areas with wealthy friends um, in wealthy schools. And there was, I have to say, maybe an absence of reflection about their own privilege about their life, at least a deeper um, reflection understanding. So when it came to the actual law curriculum, I found that it was curious that the majority of courses didn't actually prompt us to think about perhaps how that privilege could shape our understanding of law. So we did mandatory kind of black letter law courses, but never quite did as much work around who the law might actually serve. And it really hit home when I did an elective on feminist law. And it was just so incredible to learn about the gendered nature of our legal system. And I thought to myself, how is there not a gender lens in every single course? Because all different types of law affects women differently. You know, what if you're a man that isn't particularly interested in learning about gender questions? You would never have to really confront that within the, the law degree. You could graduate um, and not necessarily have to grapple with those gender or social questions. And, you know, that's a big deal because I think that if we're creating a cohort of future leaders who are going to take onto, you know, higher leadership positions, it's really fundamental that we can teach tools of self-reflection so that when we go out and into the workforce, we can challenge existing norms, structures and institutions, and we're aware of how our own personal bias might affect that as well. So that was also kind of hit home to me that I think there's a lot more space for intersectionality across disciplines. So let's get started into what is intersectionality. And to give you an overview, overview about where it emerged, it was through legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw. 
and she was analysing this case called DeGraffin Reed against General Motors. And essentially what it was, was black women that sued a company for workplace discrimination. Um, and so they weren't hired and they, they challenged it on the grounds of discrimination. But the judge found that there wasn't discrimination because the company hired white women and the company also hired black men. And the judge said, unfortunately, even if there is discrimination, we just can't help you because it will open a Pandora's box of every other combination of minority. And as a result, the, the black women were left with no solution. And it shows how the way that we've categorized identity into things like gender or race makes certain communities invisible, just like this case. So as a result, the case was dismissed. So in essence, intersectionality then is the intersection of our different identities, for example, class, race, and gender. And it's the combination of these that means that as individuals, we can experience both privilege and oppression. So for example here, somebody can experience both racism, sexism, and classism. For example, a low income or refugee migrant woman. Um, so these aren't exclusive to one another. They combine and form both that unique experience of privilege and oppression. So maybe a better way to describe it is an apple. And we can pull out the different components, which is taste, texture, temperature, and color. But what if you put it in an oven? Well, the apple will turn brown, the texture will go soft, the temperature will become hot, and the taste will become sweeter. And in a way, this is all still part of the same apple, still part of the same thing. They, they work together. The same goes for intersectionality and identity. You know, these interact with one another. They aren't separate categories of who we are. So an experience that I had with intersectionality that really struck me was quite actually early on into my, my journey as a youth advocate. And I was chairing the Victorian government's Youth Congress. And it was the Victorian government's first ever youth advisory board representing over a million young Australians. And we came from all walks of life, uh, people from refugee backgrounds, indigenous backgrounds, people that experienced homelessness, mental health issues, um, you name it, we were all, we were all pretty much there. Um, and we decided to focus on the topic of mental health because it's the biggest killer of young Australians and we saw a lot of spaces for reform there. And we found that there were similar kind of themes that were affecting young people broadly. So for example, not being taken seriously, um, inflexible hours, so you know, mental health services that weren't open after school, um, the fact that young people maybe couldn't access transport and also the education system, which would inflict you know, stress and, and cause mental health issues. But it didn't end there. I found that actually intersectionality played a really key role, even in us as young people, about how we experience barriers uh, to the mental health system. So for example, somebody that was an Indigenous Youth Congress member talked about the idea of intersectional trauma in their experience. Um, somebody that came from a refugee background talked about cultural attitudes to mental health and traditional gender roles. Um, others that had experienced the foster care system talked about the burden of taking care of children or volatile living situations. And you, you can also see others here. So for example, those that were low income had to balance that on top of work and those that lived regionally you know, had, had barriers to transport. The reason why I show all of these is to demonstrate that there couldn't be one universal youth issue. It was very much only a surface level understanding of the different barriers that young people faced. Um, and because of the intersections of identity, it shaped how we experience the mental health system differently. 
so it challenged that there was not kind of you know one young person's experience with the mental health system intersectionality played a, a really key role um, just like a lot of other social issues an example of intersectionality in action is also just looking at um, maybe the obvious which is COVID-19 you know on its face this is a virus but the social ramifications of, of what this virus and pandemic has done has been extraordinary and intersectional. We saw that in the closure of Victoria's public housing during the kind of early stages of the pandemic, the way that that affected uh, you know, migrant refugee, refugee women who weren't sure whether they could have you know, resources to provide for their children, um, the way that domestic violence rates spiked because of lockdowns, um, up to 10% of Australian women experienced uh, gender-based violence, according to, to studies there, and was markedly also higher in Indigenous, um, for Indigenous women. And also things like PPE, not adequately fitting women um, because it was designed by men. Those kind of things that kind of reflect, again, the norm um, within even our, our health systems. So I thought that was quite interesting to see the intersectional layers. So you might be thinking, okay, you know, I understand intersectionality, but how do I actually meaningfully incorporate this in research? Is it a case of just trying to think of every single combination that I can think of or trying to identify the most disadvantaged person? To which I say, uh, no, because I think that would be impossible and probably very burdensome to try to think about every combination under the sun. And to be you know, quite frank with you, um, I'm not a PhD student and I don't necessarily have an easy to apply framework within every single research discipline. But what I do think it, it begs the question is to challenge the assumptions and norms around the types of groups that you are addressing or researching about and being willing to be open and flexible to think about maybe the invisible groups within the problems and social problems, etc., that you're addressing. And actually, I think that before just jumping in and applying a framework, one of the most powerful things that we can do is self-reflect. And I know that this seems kind of obvious, but I think that often we actually don't step back and reflect about our own privilege in our own lives and how this might shape not only our research, but our worldviews as well. So I think that there are different ways to do this. So the first is to, I guess, pick out the different intersecting parts of our own identity, as I mentioned before. So for example, as you can see here, race, occupation, religion, education, gender. So for an example with me, I'm a low income woman, I'm Asian Australian, and I'm a student at university. And those affords different levels of both discrimination and privilege through the combination of my different identities. And what these different identities lead to is a bigger question about who holds privilege and who holds power. And there is differences in these two terms. So privilege is the collective advantages that a person can inherit from birth and or accumulate over the course of time. So for example, uh, if you're living in Australia and you are a white person it's in it's a white majority society, that confers a level of privilege um, because it means that you, know, you won't experience racism. And what privilege isn't meant to be is it's not meant to say your life, you haven't experienced hardship or difficulty in your life. It's just saying your life hasn't been made harder because of factors like racism. That's essentially what privilege means. The second term that I think is important in this conversation is who holds power. And power is the ability or capacity to do something or act in a particular way. 
or influence the behaviour of others or the course of events. And to outline how power and privilege interacts, you know, between others, we might have difference. However, those in power can set the terms for the status quo or who should gain preference. And that creates this cycle where the status quo and who falls into that confers privilege, which again supports those that hold power. And it's kind of like a loop. The reason why I think that this is also important to think about in research is that I do think that we have a long way to go in terms of diversity in the upper leadership uh, in universities. And in 2018, there was a study that found that 94% of senior executives and 96% of vice chancellors came from a Caucasian British background, um, which quite frankly surprised me actually. So I think that there are real conversations to be had around how our backgrounds may shape how we understand research, how we understand pressing problems and how we frame these as well. So it's really helpful to be able to think about intersectionality, especially in this moment. So there are different questions that we can ask ourselves, but the first I think is to almost try to map our position and place in society. So it could be asking, how does the world see me? You know, if you walked into a shop right now, if you sat on public transport, um, you know, if you went to a job interview, how might the world see you? Um, and how would the different layers of your identity shape that interpretation? The second is, how predictable is my life? You know, how, how far ahead can I plan? Um, do I have a stable job, stable income? Do I have a roof over my head? Um, can I plan three, four, five years into advance? How predictable is my life there? Another one is how easy was it for me to go to school, get into university, get a job and find a partner? So were there any challenges with being able to afford or access university? Um, with finding a partner, you know, sexuality would play, would play a role there as well. Um, the next is how much space do I take up? And this is kind of a, a big question, but I guess to describe my experience with that question is that I'm a young person, but I am privileged to have a platform and I'm privileged to be able to speak to you all today. I recognise in this space that I do take up more space than an, an average undergraduate student, which does confer to me um, a level of privilege that I have to be, to be mindful of. I recognise that I don't speak for all young people as well. The next one is um, maybe more research-based. But I always say the first step to thinking around diversity in this space is to just look around the room. So if you look around the team that you work with or the people that you often interact with, how diverse are the people around that table? Um, and it's that simple awareness that I think is, is actually really powerful because if it isn't, it's worth asking why that is. Um, but there are some questions to ask yourself, which is you know, if you're focusing on a certain issue, who is most impacted by this issue? And while some responses, if you suspect that there might be, you know, different layers, who should you speak to about this? You know, what, who, what kind of communities, what leaders should you be talking to, to, to delve deeper and more meaningfully into that question? Um, the next is things like, am I the right person for the job? Which is, again, quite a, quite a big question, but I think it ties into, you know, this question here, which is, how might your place in society impact your understanding of this project? So, Maybe you know, a way to do this is, as this question says here, how diverse is the team? Bringing in people that might have lived experience um, with the issue itself, or might be able to better unravel those intersectional impacts of the, the issue that you're addressing. So those are just some kind of initial, initial guiding points to reflect about um, 
the role of intersectionality in research. But again, it's dependent on the context. Um, and I think it all really starts with, with open-mindedness um, and willing to challenge your own biases and prejudices that you may not be aware of until you sit back and reflect on them. And the reality is that really most things actually are intersectional. So I was reading something about um, vaccine distributions in the US and I found it really interesting because this person used an intersectional frame to vaccines. And they talked about distributing it not only around the increasing vulnerability to infection, but also a social vulnerability because for example, around race, ethnicity, housing, gender, occupation, because they realize that these are also health issues. Um, and as a result, their framework factored into that social vulnerability as well as, as a criteria around health. I thought that was really fascinating. But intersectionality can be applied across the education system, the legal system, health system, housing, finance system, transport, to name a few. Um, but ultimately it is around challenging the norm um, and who we are treating as, as the norm and the group, the main group, and what communities may be rendered invisible as a result. So as I said before, I ultimately think that this comes down to being open-minded and being willing to ask questions around this space. Um, intersectionality is complex, but I think that it's powerful because there are so many deeper layers to these questions that we're addressing. Um, and as a young person, looking on and seeing the impacts of COVID-19. I hear our leaders saying things like, we're all in this together, but I see the way that our systems impact women and different types of groups of women differently. I can't help but think how powerful it would be for researchers across the board to mainstream this idea of intersectionality and to always be factoring into diversity across their recommendations and how much better off we may be as a consequence. Um, so it's my dream to see intersectionality mainstreamed in policy. I think it could really help shape our society for the better. So as a concluding note, um, I wanted to say that we all come from different intersections through this life, um, but ultimately it's the power of our diversity that gives us strength. Hopefully this could provide um, a, a starting point for all of you. And um, thank you so much for, for listening to my presentation. Bringing more intersectional thinking into research isn't as complex as it may sound. As Yasmin said, it can begin just with more self-reflection, being aware of our biases, and noticing how our backgrounds may shape the research we produce and consume. And doing that can have a big real-world impact, from policymaking to how we treat mental health and social issues, whether it's in research or any other part of our lives, Yasmin reminded us that it's always possible to challenge norms, examine who benefits, and what groups may be made even more invisible because of gender, race, class, or any other identity. It's definitely food for thought. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time. For Wiley, I'm Anna Ayler, and you can find more episodes and learn when new episodes are released by subscribing in iTunes or wherever you like to listen. You can get more news and information on society publishing from Wiley on Twitter by following us at Wiley in Research and on our website, wiley.com slash network slash society leaders. Our theme music was produced by Medine, and this episode was edited by Dennis Velasco. See you next time.